Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. I'm Andy Boyd. My guest today is Shauna Redmond, professor of musicology and African-American studies at UCLA and author of Everything Man, The Form and Function of Paul Robeson from Duke University Press. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, I'm interested in the subtitle of your book, The Form and Function of Paul Robeson. What What does that phrase mean to you? So the subtitle is meant to kind of play on certain formalistic elements of the language within music study, but then also to announce some of my interventions in the various case studies that I look at throughout the book. So on the former end of it, it's quite often the case that when folks study music in a professionalized way, um, or even in a popular way as far as composition or songwriting, people are really interested in making a hard and fast dichotomy within the study of the music. Either you're studying the form, you're studying its notation, its rhythmic impulses, its composition, or you're studying its function, which quite often is seen as the lesser less rigorous kind of pursuit within the study of music, particularly if you're interested in looking at popular musics. So I wanted to make some nod towards a critique of that dichotomy and Robeson became the vehicle by which I might do that in a really um, profound way because he's someone who is actually combining both of these elements in really important and significant ways that because of his ability to constantly change shape throughout his career, he's already beginning to trouble the form in which we imagine a singer would be that this person is constantly being made available to us in ways that we would never otherwise anticipate. So the form element is something that he very easily troubles throughout his career and beyond his lifetime. But then also the function is something that was ultimately the penultimate reason for his performance in the first place. He saw himself as someone of service. He saw himself as providing a, an opening for others to project their own voices. He was, in a sense, an amplifier. And so his function is very intimately connected to the types of forms that he takes throughout the 20th century. And so it's both kind of a critical uh, approach to the study of music, uh, a twist towards um, some other language that we might pursue or a way in which we might better merge those two elements, the form and the function. But also for my purposes in, in writing the book, it was a perfect description of how I wanted to position Robeson within the historiography. Great. Yeah, that's super interesting. I was um, I was surprised and I, I have to admit, I don't think I, I have all of the uh, musicological training necessary to to you know follow the intricacies of the of the musicology arguments, but I was really fascinated by the way you brought together the kind of musicology analysis of Robeson as a performer with a more sort of social history, you know, African American studies, American studies methodology relating to kind of his social context. 
which which I feel like also connects to, you know, for Robeson, he is an artist and an activist, sort of both at the same time, in a way that strikes me as, you know, in some ways kind of ahead of his time, we think of, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of artists who maybe do their art and, and use their art as a kind of as a as a way to get a message across to a wider audience. But for him, they're really very closely integrated these two sides of his uh, personality. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, how Robeson saw his, his singing as kind of part and parcel with his activism? Absolutely. So Robeson very quickly in his career recognized that he had a talent that could be used to do social and political service, that there was an opportunity for him as someone who relatively quickly amassed a unique platform for himself. There was an opportunity then for him to be of radical service to the communities and causes that he cared about. So his career beginning during the kind of um, launch and height of the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s, he began his musical career by insisting on the fact that the Negro spirituals were an art music and an art music that was not simply Uh, relegated to the halls of the Carnegie uh, halls or the concert stage, but ones that actually could be made available to and necessary for people's everyday lives. And so beginning from that moment of 1925 on, he understood that he had a role to play in developing political thought as a musician, but also in being of service to movements, which opened himself up to different types of challenges from his communities. He was very attuned to the types of reviews that he would get from the Black community. He was attuned to the types of languages that were being used in Black communities in particular around the ways in which their identifications would change, right? Going from colored to Afro-American, for example, that the ways that people were identifying and describing themselves were rapidly changing. And he was keen to understand how those changes were happening and how he might play a role in that. And so his work from very, very early on, as someone very concerned with ideas of racial representation were deeply attuned to the politics of the moment and the politics that were emerging from the communities that he saw as his own, which very early on included not only Black African descended peoples in the United States, but included the workers, the working class, and also African and working peoples, dispossessed peoples around the globe. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, it, I, I've been reading, I happen to have been reading lately a lot about music during the period of the Harlem Renaissance. And it seems like there's a, a, a theme that emerges in this literature of a kind of high culture, low culture divide, whereas, uh, you know, there, there are, there's emerging jazz and blues music that is, is often sort of ignored or denigrated by more sort of elite visions of what black music could or should be. Um, you know, where you, where you see, uh, I, I, I think there's a detail in Angela Davis's book about, um, bl- uh, black women blues singers about Bessie Smith auditioning for a black owned record label and, and not getting a contract, which just seems totally incredible to me today. Um, and at the same time, it seems like Robeson is really kind of straddling this divide in a really interesting way where he's insisting that music coming out of the folk tradition, you know, specifically the spirituals is sort of already art music. How do you feel like he is, uh, you know, able to to bridge that divide to kind of appeal to people who have a more 
I don't know, elitist sensibility while at the same time kind of maintaining his roots among the working class. I think it's a really interesting kind of intellectual uh, maneuver that he was um, performing at this moment. So one is being able to appeal to a burgeoning kind of elitist middle-class sensibility while at the same time critiquing it. Don't get me wrong. This was not simply an appeal for the sake of inclusion. This was an appeal for the sake of broader organizing capacity that he wanted to figure out ways of actually drawing in diversely classed, diverse uh, racial um, communities as a means of then building a broader base for, um, you know, critiquing the state and growing uh, racial justice and economic justice capacities. But he was able to make this type of appeal to a more elitist club through his knowledge of art music traditions. So there was a period in his career where he was also incorporating various arias of the Western art tradition and things into his performances. Um, It didn't last forever. And certainly even as he was selecting those arias, he was very particular about the uh, composers whom he would perform. But there was a moment where he was placing alongside these spirituals with a Handel aria, for example, as a means of demonstrating their fitness for inclusion in that body of artistic work. But then attached to that was also his insistence that was built through his relationship to his accompanist, Lawrence Brown, that these are the musics of our people. These are the musics that were grown from the condition of the enslaved, which he knew intimately as his father was a formerly enslaved person. And being able to draw those ties between folk cultures in the U.S. and on a global scale and the art traditions that so many elites believe to be the penultimate achievement of any given community or civilization. I mean, it's interesting to think about this moment through Black political frameworks because someone like Marcus Garvey believed that folk music was... uh, was something that could be used to um, hamper and uh, caricature the Black community. He wanted his musicians to be aspiring to Western art standards in their compositions. And so you have someone like Robeson, who's overlapping with Garvey in this moment of the 1920s, and there are these competing conversations that are happening, and both of them are vying in some material material way for the hearts and minds of that Harlem community and the broader Black uh, community throughout the United States. And so he was able to uniquely combine what he knew of the folk traditions of African-descended peoples with his knowledge of this art music tradition and make it something different. At the same time as he's doing this from the stage, he's also sitting in jazz clubs He's also going to see Ethel Waters sing and co-starring with her in films, right? So he was not, um, even if he did not produce himself a number of blues recordings, he was not known for having sung the blues, although I do discuss one recording of the blues that he did perform in the book. Um, He recorded one of W.C. Handy's songs in the early 1930s while in Europe. So he did perform these musics himself, but more than that, he was a fan of them. And I think being able to situate himself not only as a performer, but also a fan helped to actually blur the lines between a, a rigidly conceived of art tradition or elitist 
proper representation of blackness alongside what he understood to be the songs of the people, the folk tradition, and the emergent popular cultures that were more intimately grown from those folk traditions, which included the blues and jazz. Yeah. Um, is he, So I'm just trying to sort out the chronology. So his kind of embrace of the folk tradition, um, does that come kind of before or, or after his introduction to Marxism? Where, what's the, what, where's the, where's the heart? Where's the, or the cart? Where's the horse in that, in that question? Because it does seem like his kind of valorization of kind of uh, the, the folk tradition has a lot in common with Marxist aesthetics, right? Yes, absolutely. And part of the interesting element and and um, kind of radical impulse of Robeson's life is that you can see that he was self-starting around a lot of his later Marxist training at this stage in his career. So again, because his father was an enslaved person, he had a very keen relationship to the violences of laboring for African descended peoples in the U.S. and slowly but surely then extended that analysis to the entire working class, um, the waged and unwaged laborers of the country so and the world. Um, so his kind of sensibility around labor um, were developed very, very early, even before he was a stage name in the 1920s, but it was not studied to the extent that we now understand him to be until the later 1920s, early 30s, when he moves to Europe, he takes a role in star uh, in Showboat, which made him a star. Um, and his first performance of that role is in 1927 in London. He does not pioneer it here first. He develops it there. And while there, he's interacting with a number of working communities in London, um, especially dock workers and peoples who are working in transit, because many of these people are also carrying with them various forms of knowledge, whether it be through their own cultural traditions, as many uh, African folks were working on the docks and in the cities of Western Europe, or whether it be through transfer of newspapers and other types of periodicals that were carrying news of the radical world all over. Um, So this is the moment at which he really begins to study Marxism and think about a global working class, think about dispossession on a grand scale. He's also at this stage studying languages so that he can better communicate with his communities and sing in their languages as he's building his broader folk canon. Um, But these kind of sensibilities and sensitivities to questions of class began very, very early, even before formal study. So he's in he's in London in the 30s. I'm just curious. Did you know, did you find any evidence of him coming across the path of CLR James? Did they know each other at all? Yes, they did know each other. And actually, James appears in a footnote in the book um, from a comment made by Sterling Stuckey, a famous, um, very revered black historian in the States who had interviewed um, C.L.R. James at one point and C.L.R. James, I'm paraphrasing here, but notes that I've met many amazing, renowned, revered people in my life. None of them surpass Paul Robeson. Um, And so they have met, they did meet, and um, actually C.L.R. James had written a play that Robeson hoped to uh, produce and star in. Um, 
And so that relationship was very present for him. And they did meet in London and had a, a reverence for each other that continued throughout their lifetimes. Wow, it'd be great to be a fly on that wall, wouldn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Can you imagine? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask as well, so this this kind of growing internationalist sensibility, uh, is that kind of emerging at this time as well? Um, this, this kind of uh, appreciation of the commonalities of the Black experience in America with the colonialized experience of people all around the globe, does that kind of date from this 30s period in London? Absolutely. So while he's there, he's communing with these working communities, organized labor in particular, right, captures his attention as he begins to commune with, have relationships with and perform for unions throughout the area. And this is also where he develops or the period in which he develops a longstanding relationship with the miners of Wales who make quite a prominent appearance in the book. Um, because I found that he is um, so well preserved in Wales that they may actually surpass any nation on earth as far as their knowledge of Robeson and their continued present day reverence for him. Um, it's pretty fantastic to walk through that country and um, to have most folks whom you mention his name to know who you're talking about, which is just <laughs> not the case in the United States. Um, so this absolutely, this 1930s period, and of course, so much of it is precipitated by or contextualized by the broader global economic downturn, the depression that has hit all over the globe. And so people are really every day confronted with the material realities of the failures of capitalism at this moment. And so in addition to that context, in addition to him working with unions, he's also in close conversation with a number of African students and leaders who are developing, um, you know, new ideas of liberation, new um, policy initiatives around independence on the continent. He becomes friends with a, a young Kwame Nkrumah, a young Jomo Kenyatta, these icons who go on to lead and be formative thinkers in independence movements in Ghana and Kenya, respectively, but certainly throughout the continent. And so all of this is coming together in this dense mashup, and he sees all of the ties that bind these communities together, the working and the colonial. Um, and he's also very attuned to how those relationships reflect his experiences and the experiences of his communities in the United States. So the 1930s really do become this moment of radicalization, and he was so engrossed in them that he makes a claim that were it not for the encroachments of fascism and World War II, he might have lived the rest of his life in Europe. Wow, that's great. You mentioned briefly his connection with with Wales, which I, I found this is, is a, you know, a significant section of your book. And I found just totally fascinating this idea that that he would be he would so embrace and be embraced by this nation that as you remind us, it's like 96% white, right? Right. Um, and yet there's there's not just a sort of political connection. Obviously, there's the idea of, you know, solidarity with, with the miners, but there's also a musical connection between him and, uh, and, and the Welsh miners. Could you talk a little bit more about that kind of exchange between them? Yeah, so this was one of the most interesting parts of, of research 
for this project. It just piqued different types of curiosities for me. I actually knew very little about the um, vocal traditions in Wales, but part of that relationship, the solidity of it, as you're noting, is based on the fact that Wales has a very rich choral tradition um, through which they've developed their own kinds of hymn traditions. And it's such a part of the fabric of that nation that it takes on a a national significance for that country. So um, Robeson's relationship with the miners was built from a deep investment in issues of the working class, but also because at the moment of the miners kind of... um, dominance within the economics of the nation of Wales actually developed a whole set of other um, traditions and influences amongst themselves. And one of them was through their choral traditions. So the the, uh, miners union had their own choir. Um, Each of the locals, if they were capacious enough, would develop their own choirs and they would have competitions every year between the workers um, for champion choir, but also would just find a lot of joy and solidarity in performing with one another. So they had these national steadfasts, which are their choir um, gatherings and competitions. And these would often run parallel to a nationwide steadfast, where choirs from various schools and churches and things would also participate in competitions alongside the miners. But the miners also had their own distinct steadfasts until the industry went under in the 1980s. Um, And so Robeson was kind of duly compelled by the developing cultures in Wales, both from a labor perspective and a choral perspective. And there's a lot of lore of Robeson in Wales, in part because that's how he circulates, because he's been so thoroughly erased by official structures um, throughout the world, most especially the MI5 and the CIA here in the United States, you know, people have made up their own stories about him as a way of knowing who he is, who he was. And one of the those, those fables told of him is that he introduced the spirituals to Wales, which actually happened in the late 19th century when the Fisk Jubilee singers sung there. Um, the Fisk singers, of course, coming from Fisk University, a historically black college here in the U.S. But he was a major um, kind of steward of the spirituals, obviously, on a global scale and was really profoundly impactful in Wales, such that the Estedfad started to adopt some of the Negro spirituals into their repertoire and um, would invite him to perform with them. And one of the most formative moments of that performance happened in the early 1950s during the period of his passport revocation. Um, So in 1950, Robeson's passport is revoked by the federal government. They argue it's due to suspicion of communist activity. He argues it's because he has spoken very publicly on a global stage against the violences of the U.S. federal government, both against African-descended peoples in the U.S. and in their efforts to further colonization abroad. Um, But it's during that moment that they take to the telephone as a means of communicating with each other. And they hold an hour long concert between Robeson in in his do-it-yourself New York studio and the miners of Stedfod in Porthcall on the southern coast of Wales. And they have an hour long concert singing to each other 
through the new telecommunications uh, facilities that had driven wires under the ocean so that people might speak to one another. And it's just this beautiful moment of recognizing first how powerful music becomes as a means of solidarity, as a means of political speech, but also thinking about how significant this person was, how significant Robeson was to the national cultures, the laboring cultures of that nation, that they risked censure um, for this reviled man, but they also were willing to um, sit and listen to this man without any sight lines in order to hear his glorious voice speaking to them and singing to them on that day. Yeah, you mentioned his glorious voice and and a a kind of refrain throughout the book is how people, when they're describing Robeson's live performances, it it almost strains their capacity of expression and they'll, they'll, you know, compare him to a volcano or a hurricane or, you know, they'll compare to these these kind of seismic uh, events. What do you think about Robeson kind of made him seem larger than life to these people, other than the fact that he was, I think, quite tall, right? He was quite tall, actually. Um, I've seen various markers or measurements of him everywhere from about 6'3 to 6'5, 6'6 area. Um, so in in many respects, yeah. you'll see this in images of him. He towers over other people. So there is the stature that is undoubtedly a part of it because so much of his presence, so much of his politics was actually be- meeting people face to face. And so we, we think about our celebrities in this moment, right? And it's impossible to meet them face to face. That is just not the culture in which we live. But he was the person who wanted to shake hands, who wanted to receive people one by one in small groups, large groups, and would make himself available for such things. Um, But part of what I think makes him so uh, towering a figure is first his voice. And, And the voice in the book becomes a method of passage. It's a means of political expression. It's it's also kind of the um, very essence of his power. Um, and to think about his voice as so distinct that it's incomparable, right? That there's no one else who sounds like Paul Robeson. And I think that because he was making such a distinction for himself, not only through his song choices, but also through the types of uh, repertoires he was willing to sing, the Negro spirituals, he was singing in Welsh, he was singing in Yiddish, he was singing in uh, Chinese, he was singing in all of these languages. It absolutely distinguished him and made him seem as if he belonged to everyone. And I think in that way, it added to the infatuation of him, the sense of him being everywhere all the time, um, and absolutely then began to escalate people's sense of his scale so that they were at a certain point, as you mentioned, describing him as a mountain, right? Thinking of him as someone who could reach any peak and was going to be permanent in their sight lines forever, Um, So it's both about his voice becoming that type of mechanism, but it's also about his indomitability, that he absolutely would be not, he would absolutely not be silenced. And I think that people had a tremendous amount of respect for him, even if you disagreed with him politically, there was, I was 
always finding people who mixed their criticism with praise, even if they were critical of how he positioned themselves. There, there was nothing but um, admiration for the type of figure that he was in the world, someone who would absolutely stand up for their beliefs, someone who was willing to sacrifice anything for the causes and the people that he believed in. And I think that too lent itself to people's understanding of him as this towering figure, as someone who could not be moved. Yeah, you quote somebody in your book saying that Robeson was perhaps the most talented person alive in the 20th century, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, I, which they, yeah, they seem to really, you know, that doesn't seem to be an exaggeration when it, No, I mean, it seems an impossible statement, right? It seems that it must be the most hyperbolic um, statement this person has ever uttered, but it's absolutely based in fact. I, I can't think of another person who combined such incredible study and commitment to as many areas of pursuit as Robeson. I mean, it's almost impossible, just it's almost impossible to even rattle them off. So he was an all-American football player, valedictorian of his graduating class, a Columbia Law School graduate. He was um, a stage actor, a film actor, a singer. He was uh, an intellectual, a linguist. He was a debate champion. He, um, you know, was an organizer, a political icon. He was all of these things. He had so many talents. He played in the early NFL, the early years of the NFL. You know, he did all of these things and he did them incredibly well. So it's not just about the sheer number of things. Many of us try many, many things of which there is no, <laughs> you know, notable um, impact. But he was impactful in every arena in which he performed. And this has everything to do with his relationship to his father, who instilled in him not only kind of an individual um, sense of pride in who he was and which necessitated him doing things um, to the best of his ability, but really in a race pride that you are a black man and everyone expects you to fail. Everyone expects you to be under their heel. You have to prove them wrong. And that he did his entire life. This uh, reminds me of Du Bois' idea of the talented tenth. Is there is there a connection there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the time at which Robeson was coming to public attention, Du Bois' ideas of the talented tenth were still in, in wide circulation. And of course, Du Bois abandoned that idea, that theory, at a point in his life. And the two of them actually were very, very close and were maturing in their political ideas together. Um, Robeson would call him the great Dr. Du Bois and would essentially sit at his knee to have discussion and debate with him around global issues. Uh, They worked together through the Council for African Affairs. They were both founding members of that organization, which was an organization built to actually draw critical attention to the continent as a place of radical resource, radical organizing, and cultural traditions Um, and was meant to actually debunk so many of the savage images that were being put together through U.S. and other imperial media at the time 
end to the present day um, about what was happening in the continent on, on the continent in various countries there. And so their relationship to one another was very, very intimate. Um, and they developed their, their ideas around Marxism, around communism together. I mean, it's telling that Du Bois becomes a card-carrying communist in his 90s, right? He'd already come yeah. to the ideas of socialism, already embraced them, um, but makes that additional leap of being a public member of the party in his 90s uh, just prior to leaving the U.S. for exile in Ghana. Um, and Robeson was with him every step of the way, that they were comrades in this from the 1930s through the ends of uh, Du Bois's, uh life in the 1960s. And that was a very, very close relationship. But he certainly, uh, Robeson certainly was a marker and an icon of that early talented 10th ideology. Uh, um I wonder, so you mentioned Du Bois, you know, taking on membership in the CP in his 90s. Uh, I, I'm not sure if your book says or not, but did, did Robeson ever become a card carrying member of the party or was he always, did he always maintain a certain, um, you know, distance from, from the party? Do we know that? Is that, is that known? We don't know that for sure. Um, the best minds uh, say that he was a communist and that is not a question. I believe that he was a communist. Um, and to believe that he was one means to me that he was actively involved in the organization. Although I think part of the, the elision in people's readings of him as a communist is really thinking about him also as a strategist, that to actually be an open card carrying member of the CP would have forestalled certain avenues that he was able to take advantage of as a popular performer. And so he was very strategic about his relationship to the organization, right? Famously going before the House on American Activities Committee and pleading the fifth in response to questions of, are you now or have you ever been a card carrying member of the Communist Party? Um, and that was strategic, right? It was not a denial, but it certainly, nor was it a confession because he knew that there was work that he needed to do and would not be able to do were he to be an out and public member of the party. Um, so there were other means by which he announced his solidarity with, for example, being very public about his close friendship with Ben Davis, who was an elected politician in Harlem, who was an out and proud member of the Communist Party. Um, and so he was not willing to throw his friends or those relationships under the bus, nor was he willing to inform on them when called before HUAC. So I think that we have to be really attuned to him as a strategist and an organizer. Um, in, in those ways, he is able to perform a different type of organizing than the party itself. He's able to reach people who may be sympathetic to, may be open to, or may even be virulently against, right? But the fact is they'll come to hear him sing. And so as he takes those opportunities to sing certain types of songs and to make certain types of statements or speeches in between his songs, they then become open to or available to the possibility of a different political investment. It seems to me that one of the interventions of your book is that our 
our sort of popular understanding of what American communism is has been pretty whitewashed. And at the same time, our sort of popular understanding of the history of the black political tradition has often been kind of, um, I don't know, moderate washed or something. The, the, the associations with socialism and communism have often been downplayed in popular understandings of the black political tradition, even the black radical tradition. But it's really impossible to understand Robeson at all without realizing that he was absolutely black and, and pro-black and, uh, and, and at the same time was a Marxist. I mean, is that part of the intervention in your book is kind of trying to reassert uh, the importance of Marxism for the black political tradition? Yeah, I mean, that was not necessarily something that was on my mind as kind of an agent of driver in my writing practice, in part because that to me is just common sense. And so maybe I've taken some liberties then <laughs> in, in my writing. I should have perhaps sure. been a bit more uh, prescriptive about some of those things. It's, it's very clear to me as a student of the Black radical tradition that Marxism, socialism, all of these things have been part and parcel of how people understand themselves, whether or not they become proponents of certain ideologies, whether or not they join certain organizations, that people live their everyday lives in ways that very much map onto some of the ideologies coming out of these organizations and their major thinkers. So, um, you know, I think it's, it is everywhere to be found in this book because that is how Robeson lived his life. And that's how he understood uh, the, our better futures to unfold is through thinking and living in ways that are attuned to these ideas. Great. Um, I'd also want to talk about, we've talked quite a bit about Robeson uh, as he lived, but a lot of your book is also concerned with the ways that Robeson has been remembered or maybe forgotten or misremembered since his death. So what do you feel like are kind of the main trends in the historical memory of Robeson and, and what do they get wrong about who he was? Oh, wow. There's so much that's wrong. I mean, I do think that um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that it, that was an animating element of writing the book was actually trying mm -hmm. to correct some of those wrongs, not necessarily um, by pointing out all of those things, although I do spend some time in the book critiquing some of the ways in which he's been remembered. And I'll, I'll speak to that a little more. But I was more concerned with trying to announce all of the ways in which he's remembered and some of what these communities and artists are getting right, that there are many people out in the world who are doing justice to this person who has been so thoroughly erased from our history, but also our common sense around um, what popular culture is, what we should be expecting of our celebrities, what is the um, kind of performance culture of this country, who are the formative thinkers and actors within it. He absolutely has to be central to my mind um, to our thinking around those questions. Um, so there are, you know, a number of artists of, of very, very recent who have positioned him in visual art, one of them being Hank Willis Thomas, who I don't write about in the book because it's a brand new series of works, but he has an exhibit called An All-Colored Cast in which Robeson appears twice um, as an image alongside many others, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, many others, Anna Mae Wong, with whom he had relationships in this period of segregation. 
Um, but there are also folks who I talk about in the book, like Glenn Ligon, who have used Robeson's voice in his installation practices as a means of marking the fact that slavery is not yet over. The fact that Robeson was still singing the Negro spirituals in the early 1960s tells us something about the timeline of slavery and slavery, not just as what some describe as a peculiar institution, but as a series of structures, a series of material acts and effects that still continue to impact Black life well after the infrastructure has supposedly been abolished, um, that abolition is an ongoing practice to this day. Also, people like Steve McQueen, who I understand is um, in the works for a biopic of Robeson, um, but who has also put together a visual installation called End Credits, in which he is cycling through the uh, redacted FBI files of Robeson, who was surveilled and followed by the FBI for more than 30 years. Um, and so he has voices in this exhibit reading these redacted files, and they're moving at a very steady clip, uh, very much like end credits to a film, hence the title of the exhibition. So there are folks who are bringing him back to us in ways that are meant to mark contemporary circumstance. I think too often we think only of these evidences or performances as a, a revisiting of the past. No, this is very much about the present. Robeson is very much a part of how we live our lives now, whether acknowledged or not, and can be taken up again as uh, not only a model, as a way of revering him, but as someone who posed really critical challenges to the political infrastructure, raised radical questions of the state, of um, these organizations that are meant to assist us and protect us, but in fact actually cause us more harm. So there are these folks who are, are bringing him back in these ways. Um, and there are certainly people who are carrying on and singing the Negro spirituals as a means of protest. People like Toshi Regan, who's still out in the world doing work that matters and drawing on the spirituals as a political reserve for people to heal and also to mobilize. But there are some folks who have done damage to his legacy. And one of the um, studies in the book is a reading of some of the one-man shows that have developed in the wake of his passing, Robeson's passing in 1976, one of the first of them or the first and biggest of them was Philip Dean Hayes's one-man show called Paul Robeson, which originally starred uh, James Earl Jones. And one of my, my major critique of these one-man shows is, first of all, that they're one-man shows, and that Robeson never saw himself as singular or as without a community. He understood himself as a leader, but only to the extent that he was formed and influenced by the people around him. And so to position him as a single person is already a failed start to my mind. It is not accurate mm. with who he understood himself to be in the world. And a secondary concern with many of these one-man shows, not all, but many of them, is that they are without music which to me is just dumbfounding. Um, a person who mm -hmm. began his career in some significant respects as a singer and certainly ended his career as a singer and sung throughout. This was a person who Pablo Neruda described as never, you never stopped singing. Um, 
He was always vibrating, always moving through these vocal practices as a means of speaking with people. The fact that these one-man shows are so absent, his voice, any type of, um, you know, comprehensive gesture toward his singing capacities is a, a major error and a violence against the story of who he was. It does seem like it's, uh, you know, quite big shoes to fill in a way to have somebody represent Robeson in all of his complexity on stage. You'd need to have someone who is, you know, both a great actor and a great singer. I mean, you know, people aren't, there are not many people as talented as Paul Robeson, which maybe makes it hard to represent Paul Robeson. And this is a concession that I do make, right? It's, it's, (laughs) you know, I do say it is impossible to document the voice in the way it would most authentically need to be documented. Right. But I think, um, we all recognize that these shows are meant to approximate rather than to Mm -hmm. fully represent. Right. So the fact that there's no overture even to a, a capacious and robust rendering of the voice is a problem. Yeah. And then at the same time, I, I feel like I, I should, I maybe overspoke a little bit and there are obviously, you know, plenty of great black Broadway stars who would be able to, uh, you know, at least do, do some amount of justice to the, to that role. If, if somebody else ever wanted to you know, do a biopic or a, or a, a staged version of his life story. Yes, it's not impossible. It's impossible to represent fully or to approach his sound, certainly. But it is not an impossible feat to actually do him justice on the stage. Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk more about that idea that you brought up of him being, you know, always kind of describing himself as kind of one of the people and not wanting to set himself apart from other people. But at the same time, you know, like we talked about being Paul Robeson, being, you know, a sort of once in a generation singing talent as well as everything else that he was. I, and I feel like he kind of navigates that tension with a great deal of, of sort of grace and poise. Do you feel like there are lessons for kind of, I don't know, leadership that we can take from Robeson? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, there are many, many, some of which will likely escape me. One of them is to always be in study. He was someone who was known to have had a tremendous library in his home that was built not only of texts around music and vocal practice, but also around languages, around histories of colonization, histories of the continent, histories of uh, Eastern Asia. Um, He was always in study of something, constantly learning. Um, Some of this was very much attached to his artistic work, right? Studying old English for his Shakespearean roles and things. But much of this was really just about his edification, needing to know how the world developed as it is so that he could best combat it. And so I think um, one of the lessons for leadership absolutely is to always be in study, Another is to open yourself up to being wrong and to being challenged. And I think he is a really special model of that as well. Because he saw himself always in concert with other people, it meant that his ideas around the world were a dialogue. 
They were happening in conversation with people. These were not things that he wholly pulled out of, um, you know, isolation in deep thought. These were conversations that were happening in real time around real issues and people. And so leadership has to understand that there's a dynamic relationship that happens with those people that they work, with those communities in which they work, and to be open to being challenged about what they think and believe. Um, and then the other thing I would say is is just um, the combination of um, fearlessness and accountability. I mean, he was, this too has to do with his relationships, the dynamics he was having with people is that he always felt accountable to people. If he did something wrong or was not showing up in the way that was helpful, he wanted to be told otherwise, but he recognized, and this is part of, of, how he understood himself as a singular individual was simply as the person who was going to bear the burden of critique, the person who was going to bear the burden of um, retaliation. And he did, right? He lost 95% of his income uh, within a few year period in the 1950s. Uh, Recording labels stopped his contracts, they would not allow him access to studios, hence the do-it-yourself studio from which he sung to Wales in 1951. He was not getting film roles anymore. Um, so he understood that what it meant to be a leader, sh- leader was actually to bear the burden of assault uh, from retaliation. And this too has to be uh, in the minds, and I think it is in the minds of, of many of the leaders that we revere and respect, is, is that they are the folks who are going to put themselves on the line and in harm's way so as to protect the people around them. What about lessons that Robeson has uh, for people who are maybe young artists who would like to use their art to further the ends of social justice. I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, in the, in the past week, we've seen uh, really horrific police brutality against peaceful protesters around the country, certainly something that Robeson would, would expect to be the response of the state to, uh, to the types of systematic critiques that, that young people are, are beginning, beginning to uh, make of, of the state and especially of the police system. Um, what do you think Robeson's advice to, you know, a, a young artist wanting to use their gifts for uh, to, to serve the people would be? Um, I think his advice would be that which he modeled, which is to be consistent, um, for sure. I think, you know, there are folks who have come out in response um, through various means and media but then retreat either for fear of backlash or compromising their brand or losing out on other types of opportunities. And so again, this, this um, trait of fearlessness, I think is part and parcel of being consistent that you make yourself present, which is to make yourself a resource, something that people can return to um, believing that you won't disappear when it gets hard. Um, so I think that that's one thing is to be consistent again, to, to be in study, to know more, um, than many other people in the room about that, which you're speaking of, right? You can't speak to this contemporary moment of protest and repression without understanding 
previous histories of protest and repression and understand the terms and structures that make them repeatable, reproducible in all of these ways. And so you have to be studied in these ideas and you have to, again, open yourself up to conversation with people who know more than you do and know differently than you do. Um, I think too, it, it has to be about a, a person to person dynamic. You have to adjust yourself to um, the possibility of being face to face with people. I think part of the negotiation at this moment and part of the the compromising elements that we see of the contemporary moment is the way in which social media can both be used as an organizing tool and as a means of surveillance. And so you have to be able, you have to be flexible enough to actually do the work without that tool or to use that tool sparingly in recognition of the fact that it can also be used against you. So you have to forego this distance that celebrity has created or this this uh, kind of bubble that celebrity has created around you so that you can actually meet people where they are. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're out in the street or on the front line of these things, but it means that you're in physical proximity and conversation with people in ways that matter and give you different types of insights so that you can be most effective. Yeah. That's certainly one of the lessons that I took from, from the book is, you know, uh, obviously Robeson exhibited great perseverance in the face of the uh, the indignities that were heaped upon him by the U.S. government, but they they really did try to destroy him, and and in terms of his career, very nearly succeeded in completely, you know, wiping him off the face of the the, the national consciousness. Yes. I mean, the 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 kind of uh, doggedness with which they pursued this this singer is is really. Um, I don't know. I, maybe I shouldn't be shocked, but I, I certainly was reading that. And I think that this is, you know, part of what keeps people from perhaps meaningfully engaging with him is just the shock and awe of this can't be possible. This is not possible in the country in which I live. This is not possible um, for, for actions. These are not possible outcomes from the government that I, you know, praise and hail with the flag or with the anthem or whatever whichever means of patriotic uh, address one chooses. I mean, I think this is, it's a dumbfounding kind of um, tale that people just can't believe it's true, but in fact it is true. And I think in part, Robeson becomes used as a cautionary tale for people, perhaps a cautionary Mm -hmm. tale for those actors, activists, those artists who want to do more, who want to be more accountable and, um, want to be more closely associated with the people. Look at Paul Robeson. Look what they did to him. You're right. Destroy is the proper word. They attempted to destroy this person and worked in concert with many global agencies in order to make that possible. Um, But he survived it, right? And he is now telling tales. He is continuing to return to us. And another lesson for artists is to allow yourself to shapeshift, to become something different than you originally conceived of, because the people might need you to be something different. And if that's what they need, then that's what you become. And that is the lesson he's providing to people, the ability and willingness 
to change and adjust in order to be most helpful, most meaningful for the people around them. I would certainly hate to let the U.S. government get the last word on this conversation. So could you talk a little bit about, I mean, Robeson dies, what, in 76, I believe? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, the, the period of most intense uh, repression is in the in the 50s. So how did he spend the last 20 years of his life? Did he have a relationship with the, the next generation of artists and activists in, in the 50s and 60s? Yes, absolutely. So the 1950s really are the peak repressive moments during his professional career. 50 to 58 is when his passport is revoked. Um, in 1958, he wins the case to um, have his passport returned to him and he immediately leaves for tour of Europe and then begins tour of Australia and New Zealand as well, as well, where he has a lot of conversations with Aboriginal peoples about their struggles um, and also revives his role as Othello in the early 1960s, but pretty quickly um, starts to face health issues. And also his life partner is Landa Goodrobson, who was herself a radical journalist, intellectual and activist, passes away of cancer in the middle 1950s. And he decides to retire or in the middle 1960s, excuse me. And um, so he retires in 1965. And for the last decade of his life, uh, he lives pretty quietly in Philadelphia with his sister. Um But over the course of that period, the 50s and the early 60s in particular, he's mentoring a number of other actors and artists, including Sidney Poitier, including Harriet Belafonte, who we know um, donated of their time, their resources, um, their influence for various organizations of that period, the social, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the Congress of Racial Equality, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, all of these organizations are supported by the work of people like Belafonte, who saw himself um, as, and describes himself as a disciple of Paul Robeson. And so his turn towards the songs of the Caribbean was influenced by Robeson. His uh, support of and presence um, for protest organizations, social justice organizations, were absolutely modeled after Paul Robeson. And so he does continue to do that work. He does send the occasional dispatch um, to supporters and activists in the field. He'll give an occasional interview speaking praises to the young people who are taking to the streets and building the possibility for freedom in the United States and is always encouraging, never speaks any critical or ill will or ill word of what's happening amongst these organizations on the rare occasion in which he does speak. Um, And so in that respect, he does uh, continue to mentor and continue to build. And he does it at a very small local level in his West Philly neighborhood. People who called him Uncle Paul, who would come by to sing with and sing for him in his sister's home. And um, he goes relatively quietly um, at the end of his life. But again, this is what makes his return that, that much more spectacular to understand that this person is still being sought out as a resource and a reference many generations after his height of fame. And Belafonte is still mentoring young activists to this day. Absolutely. 
absolutely working with his Sankofa organization, assisting artists and putting together many shows and concerts on behalf of dispossessed peoples, both in the U.S. and abroad. His internationalism was formed in part through conversation with Robeson and Robeson's example. That's a really beautiful note to end on. I have a, a couple final questions. One question is, if there's a, a recording or a performance of Paul Robeson that you would recommend our listeners uh, check out to kind of get a sense of, of who he was, do you have you know a, a one or, or a few recordings you would point us to? Yeah, so his recording of Didn't My Lord De- Deliver Daniel is one that still sends chills up my spine just for the the stakes and claims that you can hear him making through the text of that song. Um, The force of it is really beautiful. So I would encourage that. Um, There's also video of him singing at the construction site for the Sydney opera house in 1960. While the workers are building the scaffolding for that opera house, he's singing to them on their platforms between the various scaffolding uh, instruments and concrete mixers. And it's a really beautiful moment at the end of his career um, for thinking about how he still remained in solidarity with folks. Um, But then I would definitely encourage folks to look up whatever they can find. um, And there's a recording of it um, that you can purchase, but of his um, concert with the the miners in Porthcall in Wales in 1951. It's a really beautiful concert between the two, uh, between the choirs and himself. Great. And, and now finally, the, my last question is, uh, do you have any other projects you're working on now that you'd like to let our listeners know about? Um, I'm actually working on a book right now that's interested and inspired by Robeson. He's uh, perhaps a, a momentary pause in the book. It's not about him, but it's really about thinking about the ways in which Black musicians have modeled the possible and possible all of the ways that through technique and endurance, Black musicians have demonstrated the possibility for all things impossible. And so um, that project is in its beginning stages, and I'm very excited about it. Yeah, that sounds very fascinating. Thanks so much for being on the show, Shauna Redmond. The book, again, is Everything Man, The Form and Function of Paul Robeson. Thank you so much. 